Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for part two of our May Mental Health Book Club, where we're discussing Prince Shakur's memoir, When They Tell You to Be Good. So if you haven't listened to part one, be sure to go back and find that episode. Today, we will be going over pages 87 through 173. As I always do, I would like people to share their initial impressions from this section of reading. I think uh, in this section, we get a little bit more of understanding of uh, some of the stuff his mom put him through, like from watching his stepdad get arrested, um, going to visit him, stepdad having a problem with his sexuality as well, to mom getting somebody from the church to try to talk to him about changing his lifestyle once again. Um, we see mom trying to do all these things instead of just accepting her kid for who he is. It just kept getting worse and worse. And unfortunately, I think he learned from a young age that the folks who are supposed to care for him, it's it's habitual like betrayal and abandonment from those who are supposed to love him. And then we also get to see the correlation with that. And when he does get into relationships and his, his love life and um, sex life and stuff like that, how the being taught to hate yourself played out in his own relationships as he tried to escape the hatred and the lack of love. He really longed to be loved and to connect with people. But that training from his formative years really messed him up. But yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. Uh, what I found the most uh, interesting, not the most interesting, because this this memoir is really, really good. But one of the things that stuck out to me was his backpacking years. I want to say he did like a gap year, possibly between high school and college. I'm not 100% certain, but um, there's a part where he's backpacking through the Philippines. I think he went to to South Korea as well. Um, And he kind of just bounced around for a little bit during that gap year. But there were just some relatable moments, such as um, some social anxiety that he experienced, especially being Black in a, uh, a area where there wasn't a lot of Black people and the whole being compared to, you know, Black celebrities that are pretty mainstream, people wanting to touch his locks, which obviously is struck something with me because just and and black people in general like we've already established that you don't ask you don't touch somebody's hair but then the stereotypes such as is it true what they say about black men you know fill in the blank there just the traveling abroad the invasions of privacy because people don't have filters or uh, boundaries uh, especially when they see you as something that's exotic And he said several times, I felt like I was in a cage. I felt like I was being observed. And then also the fact that he's backpacking and traveling abroad and there are dangers of being queer, especially in, you know, areas that he doesn't know well. And he's kind of relying on the hospitality of other people. So I thought that 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 section of him sharing about his travels was uh, very interesting. Um, So I think... (laughs) What um Nita spoke about um about like wh- how he describes his mom um I, I mean I personally don't have a parent like this thank God um but I can kind of relate to what he was saying about kind of like um praying the gay away or like you know talking to people in the church because I come from I mean I don't identify as um gay or lesbian or queer but um i feel like if i did i would have a similar story to tell because i do come from a very religious family where a lot of the themes in this book like my family would have looked at it the same way or oh you you know you need to just pray or you need to just go to church or like you know um you know nothing can be accepted outside of that and then what you just talked about um john doe um, you know, I just last week I had 
big curly hair. And then the next day I had hair down my back and I was on call the next day and people are like, Oh my God, your hair. Like, what did you do to it? And it's just always the comments about that. And I'm like, haven't you all learned by now to not ask a woman about her hair? Like just say like, Oh, you changed your hair. It looks nice. Keep it moving. Like those, those types of things, like just really get under my skin. So when you were talking just now, like it really like resonated with me. There's a book called um, Twisted, The Tangled History of Black Hair Culture by Emma Dabiri. I just finished reading it. It's really, really good. So I just wanted to give that aside because I know you love books too. So I was like, add that to your list. Um, add it to my cart. <laughs> good, good, good. So uh, bringing it back. Yes, the the family and how they handled uh, his identity was truly as a reader, heartbreaking to see as a therapist, to see like how many layers of trauma that this would cause a person. But as the book starts off on page 102 through 103, I'm going to share a little bit. Uh, He said, quote, no one hands a young gay person in a homophobic family, a guide to sex, sensuality, and boundaries. I had been fumbling through the whole mess of it and getting flashbacks to my mother trying to convince me that anal sex would ruin my body. Finding love in a and a good lay could become an expression of liberation for queer people. But if I hadn't fucked or been fucked, could I really feel liberated in a way that I wanted to? Was my body still a cage? And then he goes on to say, or he on 103, he talks about basically a sexual assault that occurred. and. So I'm going to share a a snapshot of that. He said, then just like that, I let the armor go. And I told him how a supposed friend had moved his hands over my body, how his passion hadn't felt like knives of something hot and good, but bugs crawling over my skin, how I'd shaped myself to be casual around him when I couldn't wash the imprint of him off me in the shower. Then how he'd found me again in my room and then again with his letter which ached with desperation and suburban rebellion what a stupid metaphor i'd fallen into just more white hands colonizing black flesh end quote um and so obviously it's a little vague in that i only shared a, a snapshot of that but i shared a section before that talking about how if your family rejects you and doesn't educate you. And I see this happen a lot in therapy where uh, the parent's sole focus is on avoiding identity or avoiding the truth. And what they end up doing, first of all, is pushing their child away, making them not feel safe. But then also their children are then going to get the information, possibly not from a great source. And then it opens them up to not being protected in the ways that everyone deserves to be. And so I share that kind of to juxtapose the behaviors of the family, but also some of the consequences that can happen, especially if your family doesn't accept who you are. How are you supposed to know how to assert boundaries over your body and experiences that you find yourself into? Because if he were straight and uh, someone was making unwanted advances at him or something like that, I imagine that his family would say something and give him instructions. But because he is gay, it was just, no, you're you're wrong. And it's almost like you deserve whatever happens to you. And his mom said it in many not so tactful ways. And in episode one, I talked about how he gives the imagery of his mom going from being a, I can't remember the specific wording, but basically a fierce lioness uh, to that of like a wounded cat dragging its tail. Um, she kind of flip-flops between those two roles, but good grief. The woman did a lot of damage. So I just want to say that, and again, you know, my story and my <clears throat> um, background in my childhood is, is different from his, but like parents can like really cause trauma with their words and their actions. And I know his story isn't different from, you know, others that, may no longer speak to their family or parents. Um, And it's just really sad that, you know, people can get to a place where 
they alienate their own child because of their sexuality. It's just, it's sad. I think kind of going back to some of what we talked about last week, his mom holds him accountable for the stuff his dad did to begin with. And then add on this layer of him having a, what the mom deems an alternative lifestyle. It makes it almost impossible for her to even see him as her son. It's like, this is some stranger. She doesn't care about what happens because he's not willing to conform to her ideas of what he should be doing with his life. And um, going back to this random part of the book where he's talking about this computer search where he found um, gay porn. And he's like, I know my mom and dad didn't do it. So who does that leave? And it only other person in the house was the brother. So, I mean, I'm just like, it's chances of that both of your sons were having these feelings, but knowing how you act, one chose to hide it. The other one is trying to be itself and you're still treating him like crap, basically. I actually hadn't caught that part, Nita, uh, where the the search, like he he subtly mentioned it there, but then he he mentions it later on. It's basically, I can't find the quote right now, but basically he talked about how he called his brother to come pick him up because his mom was tripping. And he said, I felt like this before too. You just need to grow up. And so he, his brother kind of succumb to the whole pray it away, avoid it, ignore it. I hope that that story develops in the next section of reading, but very good point, Nita. Thank you for, for sharing that. In this, I would say the book began with, hey, Brianna, um, the book began with uh, kind of a, a subtle mentioning of the fact that his father was murdered. And we're getting little sprinkles of the story as the book goes on. And I, I like that it's, 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 it's hard to even describe, but it almost feels like, obviously, as he's writing this book and as he's going through his life, he's learning more information. But as we read this in a relative, like, rapid pace, it's almost like we're getting little clues as to what happened to his father. And I don't know, it feels a little bit like a mystery. And I really like the way that that was like interwoven and written into this book. But on page 118, quote, it neared noon when I called my mother, I roamed the aisles of an antique store while giving her updates on my travels. You're where? I'm in this small town and I have to wait for the next bus. I'm fine though, I just had lunch. My mother kissed her teeth. Then a long moment of silence. This is a stupid idea. You must be trying to mess up your future. My heart stum stumbled a beat. I forced myself to sit down in the closest chair. I'd grown up knowing that my mother had a short fuse. I'd also grown up highly aware of how often her short fuse exploded in exact moments I'd wanted her support. It's just a summer job. I'm going to work and save money and meet new people. What's wrong with that? You want to hang out with white people. You don't know. She spat back. Tell them your business and get yourself in all kinds of trouble. You're a damn idiot. You, why are you acting like I'm doing something wrong? Lots of people take jobs in other states for a few months in the summer. It's not a bad thing. I scanned the antique store and looked for any wayward glances in my direction. The room felt hotter than before. I walked toward the door. You're reckless, just like your father. And look what happened to him. Good luck. In my life, that might have been the first time that I hung up on my mother. I waited longer and boarded my final bus to Wyoming, fighting back the heat building behind my eyes. And then later on, on page 125, he continues. I pressed on and said, it's just fucked up. We get handed a life and told to follow all these rules. Where does it get us? I came all the way here to find something. and. All I ended up learning is that I might end up like my dad or my stepdad, just bleeding out somewhere or in some jail cell. Maybe she was right. I told Colt about the phone conversation with my mother, my hands feeling like giant weights at my side. When his face softened after hearing my mother's words, I knew that he needed to know the whole truth. So I willed myself to him. I told him about 1995 and the shadow that my father's death cast over my life how he was swung from some backseat on a roadside as he bruised and bled under a stack of bodies by some unmarked grave, 
or relegated to photographs. If I was reckless enough to get caught underage drinking, maybe I was also destined to be reckless enough to end up dead or worse, like him, a cautionary tale, end quote. So he was doing his kind of like summer job or backpacking gap year. It's hard for me to decipher um, how the time frame kind of broke down, but he got caught uh, underage drinking, which is not, you know, uh, a lot of people have experiences like that. But he was talking about, of course, his mom had said the thing to him because I said in the first episode, she weaponizes uh, trauma and she weaponizes those those sore spots, uh, especially when she's not getting her way or being uh, completely submitted to. And so he was confiding in who he considered a friend. Later on, we find out that this guy Colt uh, was problematic. But for the sake of this, what I'm sharing, he was somebody that was listening to him. And uh, we kind of get a glimpse into a little bit more about what happened to his father. But like, you know, we said the 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 mom is almost like acting out her issues with Prince's father, who is Prince Senior. And she's almost taking it out on him. And yeah, it's it's getting pretty messy. So any thoughts on that section? I think it's interesting that uh, some parents definitely have that whole mindset of if you go do something that's not accustomed to what they're used to, they will tell you you're acting like another race, another whatever, just because they don't deem that something they would have done when they had a chance to. So uh, I've heard it from my mom, my grandma, all of those people. So um I definitely understand where you're coming from on that one, but you're just trying to explore your life while you have the opportunity to while you're young and can still do it. Might as well do it. And I I started out by saying that I really enjoyed the the stories <clears throat> that he had of that kind of unstructured like gap year time because I mean not everybody does stuff like that. It sounds very adventurous and very brave in my opinion definitely did not have would have not have had the courage to do something like that and quite frankly as a 30 year old now i'm still not that adventurous like i'm going to africa for the first time at the end of this year but it's an incredibly like planned like you know itinerary you know trip so i admire the bravery there i guess i also wonder like you know fear anger is really a cover emotion and I feel like in this case, that could be a cover for fear. So that's not to say that the weaponization of trauma is appropriate, nor to say that that um, sharing of opinion is even appropriate to that extent. But I also wonder how much of that, you know, we, we come back to this idea often of hurt people, hurt people. How much of that is fear-based as a mother? That's a really good point. And we talked about that a little bit last week about how I think I had shared it when I said, you know, the the book starts out and we get to meet his mom and we see she's homophobic from the jump and that she's very sharp and blunt and, you know, all of those things. But then I also said, but as we get to learn more about the story, we understand that she's a heavily traumatized individual as well. And if you're traumatized, you're survival is really what we're wired to do as humans. And so whether it comes out in a tactful or loving or, you know, supportive way, and again, it's not discounting anything, but you pass that fear onto your children and you, you want to protect them. Right. So there, it must be said that despite how problematic his mom is and how she handles things, there's got to be something in her that is fears for his safety. And so that's worth mentioning. I think I experienced that a lot with my own mother. I mean, definitely not to not extreme, but I think some of like the fear based thinking and comments like my mom, um, like if I'm in the car and I'm talking to her, like obviously you can hear that um, um, driving. And she'll ask me like where I'm coming from, and I'm like, oh, I'm coming from the grocery store, or I went to like see a play or something like that. And her all her famous first word is by yourself, and I'm like, yes, I'm a single woman, I'm grown, I live alone. Like 
it's it's natural for me to do things on my own because you know that's my reality and you know I, I can't always do something with someone like someone isn't always available to do things when I want to do something so instead of missing out like you know I'll just do do it alone I'm okay with my own company and it feels like no matter how many times I explain that or put it in different words like she just always has that reaction like oh you're you're by yourself like something bad's gonna happen like people are crazy and I'm like I get it mom and I know like you're only saying these things because you want me to be careful you don't want anything to happen and you know you worry because things can happen very very fast and you don't want my safety safety to be compromised but it's just always frustrating to me because I'm just like oh cut the cord a little bit (laughs) and you know it's just I, th- I think it definitely comes from a place of, of caring, but it is it's frustrating sometimes. There's a lot of family secrets in this family, which honestly, when I read the description of the book at first, uh, I was like, yeah, definitely want to read this book because it's almost like while he's sharing his story and his memoir and his interpretations and experiences, there's a lot of like mystery and as the story of the family keeps unraveling, which I can only imagine that Prince's mother is livid <laughs> that this book exists because she says it more than once that she doesn't want, you know, and that's that's kind of a black thing too. Don't be telling our business, right? Um, so the fact that he is a writer, um, she resented him for having a journal, weaponized the journal against him. And, you know, even... You know, the whole reason I know about Prince Shakur is because I am a writer on the website Medium, and I stumbled across his writing on there um, and then found out that he had a book. But yeah, like I I can imagine that now that I'm reading the story in the background of the mother, I bet that she hates that his his um, his experiences are out for the world to see. And I remember there's a part in this section that we read where. I guess when he's in college, he had posted a video on YouTube or some sort of website about being gay. And um, she was not too happy about that. So, and I'll get to it in a later, you know, topic uh, in this episode, but his writing was really his safe place, despite, despite the fact that she at times would take that writing and make it not a safe space for him. But going back to the family secrets, this section was pretty interesting because we got to see kind of some FBI raids and some like not getting all the information, you know, as a kid, like mind your own business, stay in a kid's place sort of stuff. Uh, So on page 141, I'm going to read a section and then I'm going to hop to page 145. But quote, after the FBI raid of our home, Dennis, who is the stepfather, um, started going on long trips as a truck driver, which sometimes lasted for weeks. By the time I was in sixth grade, my mother instructed me and my brother to start calling him Uncle Joseph on the phone and not to mention to our classmates that we had a father living with us. If I asked why, my mother's typical response was, it's grown-up business. You stick to grades in school and get your degree. My journal was helping me learn that my family's equation of happiness might not equate to my own. There were things in our home that didn't always sit right with me, like how our home revolved around Dennis. When he returned from a long trip away, he peeled off his boots and sat in his usual spot on the basement sofa. Meanwhile, my mother would be cooking, telling me which ingredients to hand her from the cupboards or when to give Dennis a drink, a drink refill. Then the dining room table was set and prayer was said and we'd eat as a family. In some ways, I didn't mind. Dennis was a warm and kind and deserving of such affection, but it was also apparent to me that he was being treated this way simply because he was a man. No matter how much the reality was dressed up, I still knew that our beautiful Black family had cracks that these theatrics were trying to cover up. And so on page 145, uh, a little bit more into the family secrets, uh, he says, quote, my mother reiterated to my brother and me in a grave tone that we were prohibited from telling anyone about the apartment. Dennis needed it for privacy, end quote. So for context... They lived in one place, but they had a whole apartment 
that was for Dennis. And obviously we, you know, first of all, if you're listening to this podcast and you have not read this section, I'm about to give you a spoiler. He was basically uh, supposed to be deported and they, the the FBI uh, was trying to find him and, you know, put him up on charges and send him back to Jamaica. And so the mother's in this relationship with this man and basically they're dodging, you know, he had to have this apartment so that he could flee if somebody was, you know, and they they shared uh, examples of like the family be having a get together, like cookout or whatever, and there'd be a knock on the door. And then everything got really like silent and everyone went, uh, you know, it was almost like, well, if you know, you know, but when you turn the light on and all the roaches scatter, that's, that's what this theme felt like. And it was just very, the family secrets, I mean, obviously this is someone's life and story, but it really made this reading uh, very, I couldn't put the book down. Um, it was like, ah, I want to know, I want to know what happens, you know? But I also find it interesting that Prince, as a young child, like saw that things weren't right. And he saw that it was a charade. Um, and I can resonate with that because I remember as a child growing up in, I mean, what is ideal? What is normal nowadays, right? But I knew from a very young age that the so-called adults who were supposed to be grown-ups and know everything were incredibly flawed and didn't know what they were doing. And of course, you don't say that as a young child, like, hey, you don't know what you're doing. But um, I knew that from a very young age. And I knew that I needed to grow up and get an education and get away and find my own path. And I just that part of him being very aware, um, as a very young person and seeing through the facade that people were trying to set up and the quote, happy family or the facades that they were setting up, he saw through that. I really identified with that. Hopefully that makes sense. But I just found that very interesting, um, that component. It was also, very, I found this part funny, but that his little cousin was the one that called 911 that day. You know, a little kid learns 911. They're going to take the opportunity to pick up a phone and dial it. So here they are trying to figure out who called on this stepdad. And it was really like a six-year-old that did it. Hey, y'all. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know how you can support my podcast, writing, and other creative projects. Head over to the show notes of this episode where you can consider buying me a coffee once or monthly, gift me a book from my wish list, or just leave a nice review to help others find this podcast. I know your time and money is valuable, so thank you in advance for your support. And now, let's get back to the show. I highlighted a couple of points here and I just want to to share those. Okay. So regarding writing being his therapy, and then I'll explain why, obviously, that that matters to me. Uh, So on page 107, quote, he asked me about why I wrote. I told him that the best part of it was finishing a piece, whether it be a poem, novel, or essay, with concrete certainty that it was meant to be in the world. That feeling had saved me more times than I could count. And then on page... 147, uh, he he goes a little bit more in depth about his writing. So, quote, during the winter months when I was 11, I started crouching in front of the heating vent in my room to read. I got to know Anne Frank while sitting in that spot and reading her diary. The photo on the book's cover showed Anne Frank beaming at the camera, which I always loved. The more I read, the more I felt that I was right there with her as she packed her things away went into hiding with her family and essentially did whatever was necessary to grapple with the anti-Semitism overtaking the world around her. Her aspirations planted a a seed deep inside of me. In one entry, she wrote, I want to go on living even after my death. And therefore, I am grateful to God for the gift, for this gift, this possibility of developing myself and of writing of expressing all that is in me. I can shake off everything if I write. My sorrows disappear. My courage is reborn. But, but, and that is the great question, will I ever be able to write anything great? Will I ever become a journalist or a writer? 
if a right if if writing could help her a teenage girl trapped in a hiding space in amsterdam who was also trying to understand her family then it could help me a black boy trying to do the same Anne's diary was a red was red plaid and had a button to close it my journal had a heavy wooden cover and an elastic cord to keep it closed it became my confidant and then he goes on to say, I lived in a household where we were meant to report on things that had happened that day at school and encouraged not to hide anything from my parents. I was beginning to learn that I had thoughts worth protecting. And then one more uh, quote that I have about writing that kind of ties in with therapy too. On page 166, he said, life was propelling me toward wanting to hold on to the very thing, writing that had outed me to my mother. I still felt my therapist's words when she told me, no matter what happens now or how your family treats you, you still have to decide who you want to be. This is not forever. You know, on a personal note, the, of course, writing being a vehicle towards like, be, for it being therapeutic for him, I get that because I, I write things and um, whether it be in my journal, whether it be essays or articles or things on the internet, I find it very cathartic. And in that first uh, section that I shared, he talked about that, that uh, the best part is when you finish something and you know that it is how it needs to be and it, it needs to be in the world. Um, I can really um, relate with that. And I share that again, because I, I found uh uh, Prince Shakur's writing on a platform that I use for my own writing. So it was like, it's very much like, yes, your writing needs to be in the world because that's how I found it. And that's how we're even like reading this as part of this book club. So I thought that was, it resonated, but also it felt very full circle. So I wanted to share that. Uh, any thoughts on writing as a form of therapy? For me, not so much writing as a form of therapy, but for me, I think reading is a form of therapy. Um, I'm since I was young and essentially when I learned how to read, um, I've always been an avid reader um, and always like read books and stuff on my own without having to be asked. And I think that that definitely followed me into adulthood and. Um, I also struggle with anxiety um, and sometimes depression. I feel like reading really helps me to get out of a funk that I'm in. Or if I'm feeling like particularly anxious, like reading is something that soothes me and helps the, the anxious thoughts um, and feelings pass a lot more quickly. Thank you. And he, he definitely juxtaposes reading and writing as ways like he he had whole sections where he's like oh this book taught me this and i identified with this character um i definitely uh can co-sign that whitney like being able to you can be going through whatever you're going through but being able to lose yourself especially in somebody else's story whether it be a novel or a, a memoir very very therapeutic um it's almost like controlled dissociation and i'm with it I um I haven't been doing much writing for therapy, but I can definitely speak to writing as a sense of self because I feel like I have been wounded by how I've been at been asked to write. Um, one of the things that's been really it was at first exciting about my career, but now has become very painful is that for the last five years I've gotten trapped into ghostwriting. Um, and ghostwriting more than I have been wanting or willing to, um, because every single position I've held after grad school has been a new role for each organization. And because it is a new role, boundaries are not always as known or as declared, and you can't always anticipate something until it arises. So the abuse of the uh, ambiguity of other tasks and duties as assigned is where I have gotten sucked down. Um, and when I left a role a few years ago, I was very upset because something that I had written um, was requoted as someone else in National Geographic. Um, and that was incredibly damaging to me because that's a major piece that a lot of people are reading. 
Um, and I was still a no one in nowheresville. And I really struggled with coming to terms with that because I don't feel like I'm arrogant. I don't feel like I am egotistical. And so I really struggled with the idea of why does this upset me so much? What is my need for credit? What is my need for validation? And then I realized it was because I had wrote that. And the reason it it came across so strong was because it was so genuine. It was so authentic. It was my voice. Um, And to have that as someone else is really hard. Um, And so my current position, I'm also getting sucked into a lot more of that. Um, And I am very eager to be transitioning out of that role. But on Friday, I had been asked to write an email and I was asked to write an an email for something I completely vehemently disagreed with. Um, However, it wasn't an ethical dilemma. It was just not the decision I thought that we should make. Um, But, you know, it it was hard for me to write it because for this time, I couldn't really write it from my my authentic self. And so the writing was poor and I was trying and I was trying. So I asked for like the bullet points and I basically just reordered the bullet points and like elevated the language. And, um, my supervisor who I'm really struggling to get along with these days, um, was basically telling me how it wasn't high quality and it wasn't this and it wasn't that. And I, I just don't care enough anymore. Um, I have been held in this position longer than I want to be held because my transfer was delayed because I'm allegedly so essential and yet I'm not essential enough to be treated well. Um, so my response was a professional, a more professional response of if that email was not to your satisfaction, you may write your own email. Um, that didn't really go so well for me. And yet it did because for the very first time in this position, I walked out on him today. I actually left work at noon because I was just so furious. Um, still furious and, and sorry for going on a bit of a rant. Uh, but yes, I can definitely speak to how unfortunately writing right now at this current moment is a bit of my trauma and it's a bit of my trauma because it is, it is ourself. It's how we project ourselves to the world on paper. And there's something about written word that's so incredibly valuable because it outlasts us. It outlasts our our flesh and bone. And so to have something that you care about be taken from you each time um, can begin to be very demoralizing, even if it began with professional and pure intention. Thank you so much for sharing that. First of all, kudos to just standing up for yourself and saying, if it's not good enough for you, then write it yourself. I love that part. So I can only imagine being part of an organization where you have to play those games and um, basically swallow your humanity in order to, you know, and it's, it's so, first of all, like you said, writing is an essence. It, 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 you give pieces of yourself to it. And when it's mishandled, that is trauma um, to you. Uh, I think there's a a time and place for it. And I think Mm -hmm. that you can also, like, if I had been being developed as an employee at the same time, it would have been more a part of my journey. But when I felt that I was getting put in the corner and undervalued, then it really feels like you're bleeding me. And, and that's a very different scenario. Um, It's exploitation at that point. Yeah. So I'm going to transition us into the meat and potatoes of this section. And gone are the days where I give any sort of trigger warning because I just checked the little box on the podcast episodes that says explicit content and I've done my job. But I want to give a couple of samples of basically abandonment, loss, and then we're going to get into we get a little bit more detail into because being uh, coming out as a LGBTQ plus person is not a singular event. It's uh, it's kind of revolving. It's ongoing and it is different based on safety time, et cetera. Um, So on page 151, 
uh, I wrote in the margin, uh, abandonment. So quote, one night shortly after we found out Dennis had been arrested, my mother handed each of us trash bags. We have one hour, she said. We have to pack up as many of his things as possible and then move them. Side note, remember they had the secret apartment with all his stuff in it. So quote, uh, I held on to the bag, looked at my brother and then to my mother. Our house was dim. So the darkness uh, played at, at their faces. The entire world was contorting, folding in on itself. Room by room, we gathered as many of his things as possible. We stuffed khaki pants, gold jewelry, sneakers, and more into bags. I stowed away two of his shirts to have when I missed him, hoping that my mother would never find them and be angry. We drove to our cousin's house and hid the contents in their garage. Staring at the garage while standing under the moonlight, my brother asked why we had to hide his things. Um, and so then she goes on to explain that. But uh, on page uh, 153, um, I wrote in the margin, more loss. It's going to continue. Um, this is, you know, his story, but there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of trauma. Um, and so I'm trying to be concise here. But on quote, uh, following Dennis's arrest, our house was robbed. Closets were open. Drawers and dressers were overturned. Clothes were flung off the racks and all our gifts were stolen. Someone, real and alive, had come to take our things. In my mind, the robbery was some manufactured plan from the universe trying to search for the man that we had erased. In order to earn an insurance payout for the robbery, we called the police to get a report. After the police left, my mother came into the dining room and revealed, Your father is upset. Said he cried in his jail cell because he couldn't help us. End quote. And so that kind of shows the, because uh, I shared earlier about the family secrets and stuff like that, but obviously, you know, Dennis got arrested and they, it, it's, it's interesting how he tells the story and creates the imagery, but I wonder if the mom almost like knew that people were after Dennis or something like that. Um, I don't want to make an assumption there, but she seemed to have some sort of forethought to know that something was up. Um, because it's not like the the police came in and like raided or, you know, uh, came to get anything, but she just had a knowing like, hey, we need to get some of his stuff out of here. So I wonder if that will be kind of brought up later. But uh, before I get into, I, I'm going to basically share some snippets about how he, uh, I put in the margin being outed part two, because we talked about it in the last section, but the shit gets even more fucked up in this section. But did anybody have any thoughts about kind of that, that loss of the father figure and kind of the, all the transitions that that threw Prince into, I want to give y'all the space to reflect on that. If you had something to add. I just found it kind of ironic how his stable is the unstable. If that makes sense. Like even when he says that he took the two shirts for when he would miss him. So you found stability. Um, and, and, you know, he notices that everything's different when he's around, like uh, the excerpt that you read earlier, how when he's around, he's got to refill his drink, his mom's cooking food. But he doesn't seem to be resentful of that at all. He says that he's deserving of the love. And so I just felt this extra twinge and this pain reading this in that, your stable was something that was so rocky, but you found your strong footing in it. And now that's been pulled out too. Thank you. And um, one of the book club members last week, uh, Becky, she had shared that there's definitely this like hyper masculine kind of dynamic within Jamaican culture. So the women are more stoic and like subservient and the men are very like boisterous and um they're basically the king right and so there was i guess comfort in that um and there's also i guess comfort in obviously a mom's relationship with prince's father was not great in the end uh and obviously she uh the mom still has a lot of resentment um but then she she finds this partner and it seems to you know prince shares like because he had that understanding of this is a facade, there's cracks in this happy black family. But then also, uh, like what you said, Brianna, like the, and it's actually a very common occurrence, especially, and I'm sure in a lot of, you know, not just black, but 
my vantage point is that of being a person of color, trying your best to appear that everything is okay. And I would say that with working with Black folks and Black families, it's incredibly important because we have to deal with respectability politics and uh, just the... Uh, we already have fragmented family structures, especially, you know, we could go in the weeds with that, like, you know, in slavery, fathers were not kept as part of a family unit. It was, it was, there was no sense of understanding. And then we don't have generational uh, examples of intact families and things like that. So even as we cross cultures and this particular story between American and Jamaican, we see that need for a black family to be whole again. And so it, it looked like it was whole, but obviously there were secrets underneath and it wasn't a stable foundation. And then when it fell apart, it really fell apart. And you're left with literally a trash bag of what's left. And um, and then the trauma snowball continues. So thank you for that insight that I, I hadn't thought of it that way. All right. So I'm going to move us into kind of the continuing on with that that sense of loss, right? Because Prince shared about being outed by his mom and Aunt Vic in the the, the last uh, episode that we discussed this book, but it got really, really bad um, in this section. So I'm definitely going to paraphrase some, but I'm also going to share some quotes here. So on page 160, quote, the feared moment arrived when my mother tore through my room read my journal, and shook me awake afterward to ask if I was gay. In those early morning hours, I watched her cry. You must have been hurt by someone. Someone must have touched you. Nobody touched you when you were little, did they? Um, You have too many friends that are girls. You should have played sports more. Who is putting these ideas in your head? Don't you know that this is sick? While she showered, I tore the journal into a thousand pieces and tossed them into the trash outside. I went to school and cried to my friends at my locker until my head pounded. I was running through a wall of flames and there was no one that could offer me water. And then there's a whole section, which honestly, I didn't even highlight anything because it was like literally, I can, well, podcast listeners, you can't see this, but literally... I just got to the point where I wrote what the fuck in the margin uh, because this bitch Gloria comes on the scene. I guess she's a member of the mom's church or someone who is trying to get the mom to go to her church or whatever. And the weirdness to me is that mom will put her child. And I talked about this in the last episode, how I can't imagine inflicting this kind of pain on your child, especially being a person who has a bond and connection with my own child. Like I can't imagine turning on them and abandoning them in every which way possible. And Becky in the last episode had mentioned, it was basically like his mom was mentally, the term she used was mentally raping him. And it was a extreme use of language, but there's really no better way to put it than the way she said it. She said what she said, but I'm going to paraphrase this Gloria woman, basically somebody that the mom knew church person basically um, has the backstory of, I used to be gay too, and Jesus saved me from my homosexuality. And Gaslit gaslit Prince, first of all, mom puts Prince in a car with the stranger, and then she proceeds to ask him questions and stuff like that. He's obviously checked out. He's like, I don't know this chick. I'm not telling her anything. But she gaslights him and says, do you not care that you're going to hurt your family? Do you not care that you're going to burn in hell? You owe it to God to this and that. I mean, it was just, I I could not even highlight any of that because it was just so, 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 so bad. And then as we continue on, on page 164, uh, quote, my mother placed her hand. So they're in church now. So we're at Gloria's church. And she says, Okay, let me paint the scene for you since I'm skipping ahead. Evangelical churches often have a point in the church service at the end where they get the pastors given this whole sermon and then the music swells. And basically there's this thing called the altar call where it's basically like lay all your sins down and burdens at the altar and walk up and basically devote your life to God, you know? And so it's this kind of moment in this church, right? 
Um, and Prince, mind you, is just here out of obligation to not, because he still has to live in his mom's house. He he doesn't want to rock the boat, right? So he's kind of just going along with it. But definitely, I think he's so brave and courageous in how he he attended to keep the peace, but he also kept to his identity and being himself and let it be known that he wasn't, you know, playing along with this. So he quote, my mother placed her hand on my forearm, hell burned underneath us. I tried to swallow through the dry heat in my throat as she said, don't you think you should go up there? I forced myself to live through the discomfort of wriggling my arm out of my mother's grip and slipping off to the bathroom to stare at myself in the mirror to remind myself that I didn't need or want to be saved by anyone because that dream had ended a long time ago. I sometimes ran into Gloria in the hallway with my mother as we left church. She shook my mother's hand and then smiled at me and said hello. I stared back forcing my expression not to change and said, I've got to go to the car End quote there. And then uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit more because this keeps snowballing into calamity uh, because he basically comes out to Dennis. So Dennis is the father figure, the stepfather. Um, and it was like, okay, you're betrayed by your mom. We've said earlier in this episode, the brother is, gay or exist on the somewhere on the spectrum of the lgbtq plus side of things and we we've talked in episode one and now in this episode where in jamaican culture uh being gay is actually something that they kill people for we have elements i mean it's definitely a thing here in the united states too but it's way way more uh common uh in in that culture so remember for context Dennis is the stepfather. He's arrested, basically in prison. They go do the whole family visit things. So they then stop going to church because Sundays are now to go visit Dennis in prison. But Prince looks at Dennis as his father. He calls him his father in this book. So this is the one almost like last person he's trying to share his truth with in his family. And you're about to hear what happens. I sat my father down in my room during my last week in Kingston and asked him what I'd been wondering since he'd been away. And so at this point, uh, Dennis has gotten out of prison and has been deported back to Jamaica. So he asked, would you care if I was gay? Dennis shifted where he sat, got up and closed the door. He looked at me again. He had more gray hairs on his head than I remembered. He'd lost a lot of weight while away. Why would you ask that? He said. Because I'm gay, I said. There was another long silence, the kind that swallows all the warmth in the room. He sighed, then said, that's not what God intended. Don't tell me someone touched you when you were younger. And I'm going to do a side note there. Every adult that Prince comes out to immediately jumps to the nuances of anal sex, uh, assuming that he was molested. Um, it's all of these like really dumb stereotypical things that homophobic black closed-minded people tend to go to and i see it all the time as a therapist and it's i'm not gonna even hold you reading this section of the book was very very difficult but i'm gonna keep going and i'm jumping around at different sections so i swallowed my pride and dodged his questions about anal sex about my thoughts on hell and even when he told me that he didn't want this part of me to be a part of his life. We walked away from each other like two soldiers after a narrow battle. The grenade blast shock left my ears ringing and my insides churning. The whole time, the whole fucking time, I had been made to feel like the destruction was born in me and was now wreaking havoc as it escaped and emaciated me. All the performances I'd done as the good son during those jail visits, the veil that I wore and that he loved was now pulled away to reveal my true face. As he spoke, he couldn't really look me in the eye, and it was only then that I realized it. My parents were the puppets performing for each other, all orchestrated by malevolent strings. A month later, my mother, my brother, and I moved large boxes to my third floor dorm room. The heat had subsided a little when my mother sat me down on a bench. 
folding my hands and looked at me and said, don't be gay while you're here, please. I blinked. I froze. I'm going to stop it there. There's so much more fuckery that occurs when he comes out and he's starting to live in his truth. But quite frankly, that last part where he's going to college and his mom has helped him unpack his stuff and literally says, try not to be gay here. It's that ongoing messaging of it's not okay to be you. What are y'all's thoughts on that? My interpretation was the same as yours. Like, don't be yourself. That was the first thing that popped in my head um, when you read that. But then also going back to what Brianna was saying earlier about like the fear that parents sometimes speak from. So I think maybe one or two things could be true or both could be true. Um, one, she was ashamed of having a gay son and maybe embarrassed by it. So she said, try not to be gay here. Maybe find yourself, find a nice girl and settle down or whatever. But then two, um, maybe she spoke from the fear, like, okay, I'm leaving my child, my baby here, and he's going to come out and live this life of quote unquote being gay. Um, and someone's going to hurt him or they're not going to appreciate who he is. And, you know, maybe that's why I need to tell him to try not to be gay here. Not saying that it's right at all, but I don't know. Maybe maybe that's where she's coming from. I don't know. Thank you for making that connection. I, I feel like as readers, we're grieving with him as we read his story, you know. Um, but I appreciate you, Whitney, for giving the nuance and the context that her statement very well could have been fear-based. So I greatly appreciate you for adding that insight. I think for me, um, I might be the only one that has like kind of lived through, I guess, some of this. And while it was not the same as the experience he had with his mom or his stepdad, um, there's all, always going to be family members that are disappointed. Like my grandma didn't talk to me probably for two years and I was okay with that because I really don't like my grandma. So I didn't care. It was a nice little break. Um, but people have this expectation for their kids when they're born. And if you start to deviate from that expectation from what they have for you, they don't really want to uh, accept that, if that makes sense. Um, it's kind of like a lot of... When people get very upset with their kids because their kids come out as transgendered and they're like, oh, I didn't raise you that way. You have to parent the kids you got. Like we learned from Michelle Obama, you don't get to control what they do when they're adults. Um, it doesn't make you a bad parent. It doesn't mean you did something wrong. It means this kid is comfortable enough to be themselves. And that's important. Um, so it's tough, I think, for him getting it from everybody he probably loves including his brother so i did go back and find that quote where we were talking about so it's on page 162 so he goes on to say this is uh when his mom introduced him to gloria and they're having a conversation he's thinking to himself that um i didn't tell her about the pornography that i found on the computer of two black men making love when i was eight years old and how i had known that it wasn't my mother or my stepfather who had been watching it i didn't tell her how i had been a bully and called a boy a faggot with my friends. I didn't tell her about how my mother sometimes looked at me like I was someone that she didn't even know. Those were all the things that I've learned that adults didn't want to hear about or really confront. So we get that possibly the mom has two kids that's dealing with this. And I don't think the mom would have been able to handle that had that been the case. So I think he took one for the team as far as protecting his brother from going through the same treatment that he went through. And I can admire that because I would take a bullet for my sister as well. If you can prevent them from going through stuff that you have to go through, you'll do it most of the time. Thank you for finding that. And thank you for sharing what you shared. I think as I look back on this particular section and the first section of the book, his allies, at least so far in the book, were very temporary. They sometimes served a purpose and sometimes they they burned him, you know, like the guy I had mentioned earlier, um, Colt, who was the one that he like kind of shared about being sexually assaulted. Colt went on to like rape or tried to, you know, rape additional people like in the friend group, right? So it was like he had this like 
he confided something very like important to this person. And then that person ended up, you know, fading away because he was probably, you know, he's a flawed human being. Right. Um, and then it's like, you know, you have your mother who literally is supposed to be there for you, abandons you time and time again. And I can't tell I'm going back to the beginning of the book because he does kind of share a scene. So I'm trying to understand if it's the same thing or if it's different examples, but he starts the book with the mom saying something about um, his father's death while they're in an antique shop. And then in this section, we see he happens to be in an antique shop on the phone with his mom and she does the same thing. I don't know if it's the same story or if it's just coincidence, but the mom time and time again, and apparently in antique shops, likes to you know throw his trauma and the weaponize the father's death to him and then we got dennis who was supposed to be the stepfather the the kind of he even said i don't like how the family revolves around dennis but it was also some stability and then come to find out he was on the run and you know he went to jail and then got deported and then even when he's deported and it's all said and done and prince did all the things being the dutiful son going to visit playing the role um not even sharing his truth because he didn't want to like steal the thunder or the attention when he's finally in a place where he can you know he's getting ready to leave jamaica from the visit and he's able to share that it's just constantly being have being spit it's a spit in the face right i i'm looking forward to the second half of the book only because i like to think that he's going to continue to find his chosen family um and there are glimpses of that in the book i just didn't happen to highlight those particular quotes but um as he as he goes through his journeys whether it be through backpacking or uh going through school and stuff like that he does find people uh his friend i want to say her name is nadia uh he found uh i love that that friendship that he shares about he shared about it in the first section of the book too and that was the one whose mom crystal had passed away and he really felt like that's his own mom that died um so he met her i want to say the first week of high school right after the one girl had like bullied him and he he found his ally in that friend so i can't give like a, a happy like sunshine and rainbows ending to this particular section because it's how the book was sliced up but he did find his best friend through the journey and he i i think probably it, it be safe to assume that he's going to continue to build that for himself only because clearly we can see that he's gotten to a point in his career where he can write this whole story in a memoir and has built a career for himself around working through that and healing through it so um what are some takeaways or what are some um some things on your mind as we wrap up this part two of the discussion this thing is pretty interesting this kid was able to like kind of find his footing and still be able to adjust even though his upbringing was a little rocky i think sometimes they expect us to be statistics when we're coming from a single parent household when we have a parent in jail when we have all this stuff going on they don't expect you to be like a positive member of society so to kind of show that he is able to go to college and get a degree and be a writer and all those things is nice to see especially from a young black man just thinking about like his relationship with Nadia and um, Crystal, I think that sometimes like your given family is not your chosen family and how like the relationship between him and Nadia and Crystal, how she was like so, so proud of him um, going to college. Um like I think he talked about she like stood in the front yard and like waved when he was leaving um and it just made me feel like hopeful for those individuals who like their given family may have abandoned them or just because of having a different lifestyle um than they have or you know whatever the case may be like you can still find a chosen family and still have a family it's a beautiful story I think uh overcoming your adversities and living in your truth and you know being to be a, a human is to constantly be evolving and you know figuring out who you are in whatever circumstance it's a day-by-day -day thing but it's i think a privilege to be able to see it 
you know, to be able to absorb it through a book and to like watch it happen in front of our eyes. I'm, I'm a fan of the literary present. So as always, thank you all for participating. So for next week, we will be reading pages 175 to 252. Uh, so be sure to join us back next week for uh, part three. Uh, and then we will finish up the book the following week uh, with part four. So uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening and take care.